Good morning. Um, my name is Paul. I'm one of the elders here at Pillar Jacks and want to welcome you all once again in this gathering this morning focused on knowing Christ better and what a powerful way to start off Cornerstone. Um, that's why we are all here. Um, so go ahead and turn with me over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, that's where we're going to be picking up where we've left off these last few weeks uh, in the study of Acts. And as, as we turn there, I want us all to ask ourselves a few questions, um, really to prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God. Uh, the title of today's sermon that you see up on the screen here is Proclaim Christ. And it's Proclaim Christ as if you believe. So the first question that probably should come out is, well, what are you talking about, Paul, right? As if you believe, right? We're here this morning. We gather together on Sunday mornings. We go to community groups, Paul, you know, we do men's breakfast. Last week, a few of us went down to a prayer conference over at Southeastern, right? Elders, most of them were able to take off this week, right? We gather together, right? We proclaim Christ, but do we, right? In these settings, I'd suggest, if we think about it, right, it's pretty easy to proclaim Christ, right, in these kind of settings. It's, almost, it's even expected, right? It should be expected, and there's nothing wrong with that, absolutely, in these community groups, in the service, right, to proclaim Christ. But what about in our neighborhoods? What about at work? What about as we travel overseas? Are we proclaiming Christ? Okay, And then the questions get more difficult. In this passage here in Acts 4, we're going to see really an insane level of boldness. And, you could say, and we'll talk about it. But it, it's either completely insane, like off the charts, needs to be locked up in a mental institution, or they actually believe what it is that is said here in the Bible. So how about us? Are we willing to proclaim Christ regardless of the cost and is as if we truly believe what it is that the Bible says? So I'll draw your attention right to, to the screen up here. Two pictures. One's pretty easy to, uh, to pick up on, right? One is of a group, reportedly a group of Christians that were martyred um, in Northwest Africa a few years ago. Lined up by ISIS, put in jump, orange jumpsuits, and this is part of the video that that group published, right, showing this is a message to the people of the cross of what's going to happen, right? And that's kind of easy to process in one way. Yeah, that is persecution. That is proclaiming Christ regardless of the, uh, of the cost. But it's also kind of difficult for us to process here. Not many of us, I would imagine, in this group this morning have faced that kind of that level of persecution, right? But what about the other picture right next to it, right? It's kind of what's going on here. Two people, maybe at work, maybe a conversation, right? All right? Both situations can bring up fear. One's pretty obvious, right? The chance to actually proclaim Christ and then be executed for that faith. But what about that fear of talking to the person next to you, right? That fear of potential ostracization, that fear of ridicule, or just being thought of like, okay, you're not educated. You're a simpleton that believes what the Bible says, okay? So that fear can creep up and cause us to live as if maybe we don't really believe what we see here in Acts, okay? So, I want to ask a few more questions, and we'll get back to them really at, towards the end of the, uh, the sermon here this morning. But first, 
Do we really believe the gospel right here in Acts 4 that we're going to look at? Do we really believe that God works all things together for our good to those that are believed and are called according to his purpose? Do we actually believe that we can stand against the will of, or, or uh, that none can stand against the will of God? Do we count it all joy when we face hardships? And do we rest in the Holy Spirit and plead for the boldness that the Holy Spirit provides in our lives? And if so, depending on how we respond and think through as we examine ourselves, you know, we can really get a sense of do we really believe and do we really act as if we fear God more than we fear man? So we're going to tackle these questions here and apply the scriptural example uh, here from Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 of what's going to be the start of really systematic uh, persecution of the early church. But let's go ahead and read from Acts 4, starting in verse 1 through 31. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. 
when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city that were gathered together against your Holy Spirit, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to, continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Lord, we come before you. You are sovereign, Lord, and we praise you for your sovereignty. You are the all-powerful creator of the heaven and earth. You alone are worthy. You alone have brought us here this morning, unified on knowing you and recognizing you as the God above all else, the God that sent his son, Jesus, down to earth so that we may live the sacrifice for our sins. Let us learn this morning here and then proclaim your saving power to all. Be in our midst and let us understand, and not just intellectually understand, but feel the, spirit, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. And let us walk in that spirit. Be with us now as we study, study your word. And Lord, just let all we say and think this morning be to your glory. Amen. So the main point of today's message is just like the title says, and it's, if you believe, proclaim Christ regardless of the cost. If you believe, proclaim Christ regardless of the cost. So what have we seen here in Acts 4, right? We're picking up from Acts 3. Acts 3, Peter and John are on the way to the temple to worship, right, and praise God. They come across this lame man in front of the temple, and then through Christ's power, right, they reach out. They heal, Christ heals this lame man. He jumps up. He's the leaping lame man we heard about last week. And then, based on that, Peter and John go into teaching and preaching the word of God, the gospel to all the people. And it has this huge reaction. So picking up in chapter 4, the religious leaders, right, the council, they hear about Peter and John and they get upset. They arrest them, they throw them into prison overnight, and the next day they haul them in front of the religious leaders, the council, to interrogate them, probably expecting them to crack under intense pressure, right? Because, just think about this, only not that long before, they had done the same thing to Jesus, and they're probably thinking in their mind, okay, we'll let them think about this overnight. They're preaching about this guy that we took care of months ago, or not that long ago, and they're probably going to crack under pressure because their leader is gone. But then what happens? Instead of caving in, folding under the pressure, Peter and John show courage and boldness through the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel, and even refusing to follow the instructions from that council and the threats. The leaders then release Peter and John because of the fear of the people, the impact from that miracle, and all these 5,000 coming to the Lord. And then following their release, Peter and John return to their brothers, the church, the early church, and then immediately go to the Lord and 
in a time of praise and supplication, which is then affirmed right, by the physical shaking of the area in the ground and the evident filling of the Holy Spirit. So from this passage and Peter John and John's example and really the Holy Trinity's blessing because we see God in all forms, all three forms are referenced here, right? The praising of God for His healing power, the preaching of Christ, dying on the cross, and then the filling of boldness by the Holy Spirit, right? We're going to examine five main points that we can apply to our lives and then from that application, have a better understanding of God's expectation for our own walk in Christ, to, make it, to know Him and make Him known. And we can build each other up, both in love and boldness, to preach Christ regardless of the cross. So point number one is to proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ as the cornerstone. Okay, so this is the heart of the passage. This is the heart of the message, and we see it in verses 10 through 12. That when, after being questioned about, hey, what power, right, what are you doing out here? What power did you use to heal this lame man? Peter and John boldly proclaimed to the religious leaders and everyone that Jesus, the one that they crucified, you crucified is the reason that they are there, and he's the one that healed this lame man, not just physically, but spiritually. And they all, this also represents why we are here and gathered together this morning. This is why we sang. This is why we read the, from the scripture in Revelation, right? This is the whole purpose. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. And we can see here the foundation, all right? You and I, right, are crucified. You and I crucified Christ, right? Our sins have put, put Christ up on that cross and that need for a substitution, right? We deserve or deserved eternal punishment due to that sin and separation from an all-powerful God. But God had a plan in place, right? He sent His Son Jesus to earth to minister and then be hauled in front of a council Right? And then crucified on a cross. He died. He was buried in a tomb for three days. And then he rose again from the dead. Not by someone else's power, but through God's power. Through his own power. He conquered death. He is the author of our salvation. And verse 12 says it in Acts 4. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So frankly, we could, we could stop the service right here. We're not going to, so don't go for the door. But we could stop it right here because Christ is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. No one comes to the Father but through Him. So if you're sitting here not convinced or wondering why you're here, why the church does what it, what it does, this is it. This is why the church exists. This is why we exist, to worship our Savior. So if you haven't placed, if you know you haven't placed your trust and faith in Jesus, um, or you're thinking, hey, what must I do to then be saved? Romans 10, 9-13, and I'll read it for us here, really articulates it well. Verse 9, Romans 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, 
bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Scriptures also say, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, what we've done, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the gospel, right? This is the entire scriptures before Christ pointing towards our need for Christ and then afterwards pointing back towards our need for Christ and His second coming still to come. So if you don't believe this, if you know you don't believe this or you question what it is that you're doing here, I beg you, I plead with you, Recognize your place as that lame man in front of the temple and you need to go to the Lord and reconcile with God. And to do that, grab myself, grab someone here. Even if you would need to do it now, grab someone and go out because I'll tell you, the rest of the service doesn't matter if you haven't reached that point and entered into that real relationship with God. So now, if you have accepted Christ, if you know that, you have that assurance, then proclaim Christ regardless of the cost. But you can expect, okay, from this passage, that point number two, proclaiming Christ creates or incurs cost. Proclaiming Christ creates or incurs cost. And we can expect this. We can know this. This isn't going to be, you know, a walk through, you know, the Rose Garden or whatever you know, the Marine Corps poster uh, used to have up there. So this cost we can see from Acts 4 can come in many forms, depending on you know, where you live in this world, what era you lived in. But regardless, you can expect costs in terms of physical, emotional, and spiritual attacks. And these costs can in inspire fear, right? And this fear can drive us to act as if we don't really believe. And I think we can see at least three of these types of costs here in the Scriptures, here in Acts 4. First, we can see from verses 1 and 2, anger from the world. Okay? It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty awesome. <laughs> pretty awesome. And I use this awesome in terms of what was described previously, right? When the religious leaders heard that Peter and John were proclaiming Christ and they were preaching and teaching, they were greatly annoyed, right? They were greatly annoyed that these guys were preaching and teaching about a man that they thought they had gotten rid of. And so the point here is that proclaiming Christ will anger the world. It will anger those convicted by their sin. It will anger the entire humanity, fallen humanity, backed by Satan, right, that is waging spiritual warfare who wishes nothing more than to damage the kingdom of God. So you need to be ready for that. It's going to inspire anger. Know it. It's going to happen. And secondly, so that passive anger will then turn into active threats. It'll turn into active threats from the world. The religious leaders, the same one, mind you, once again, that led the crucifixion of Jesus. They're the same ones. Caiaphas, Annas, they're the same guys that are now interrogating Peter and John, really in verses 5 through 21. And so we see that their anger turns rapidly to threats, right? When they get in front of, uh, they bring whole Peter and John in front of them, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And they're like, Yes, I've been waiting for you to ask me that question. We're here because of Jesus, whom you crucified. There's no beating around the bush. Okay? And that, that creates anger, 
and it created threats. It created costs. So we can expect that, this in our own world. Think about the subtle threats are out there, right? The ones that are evident, the guys in the in all black with the orange jumpsuits, like we know that intellectually, right? We know that's out there. But what about here in our own country, right? Not necessarily the threat of prison, but those threats of being ostracized, of being rejected by friends, family, neighbors, by the educated in the, uh, in the country, or being told outright, right, you are not allowed to share the gospel. It was, it was a moment for me, my second deployment to Afghanistan, right? It was actually part of the regulations, right? We were told you will not um, tell your partners the Afghans that I was out there working with, you will not tell them about Jesus. And there's like some logical, logical and the rational, like the worldly sense reasons behind that. But that was a, that was an order. That was a, a statement and there was a threat behind it if you disobeyed that. All right. So, and we've seen that in certain work environments, right? You're basically, you are directed not to share the gospel or to remove the Ten Commandments or symbols of Christ that point others to the need for, for a Savior. So that's in our country. But like we've said, like those threats are very real and present to thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions around the world that face threats of if they share the gospel, they will be executed. Places like Saudi Arabia, Sudan, North Korea, some of these places. And that leads into the third area where we see costs is the suffering of Christians. And the suffering of Christians due to their, them fearing God rather than man. And that leads us to the point that Christians can expect to face suffering, that physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering based on proclaiming Christ. And James chapter 1 states it when he says, count it all joy when we face those hardships. And that hardship we know is going to happen if we profess and proclaim Christ. We see in the, Bibles, in the Bible, right, Christ is crucified. Christ himself, the Son of God, crucified. The disciples, apostles, imprisoned, tortured, killed for their faith. So the pattern is clear. Christians will suffer for their active faith. And very interesting, right, we're not told to physically fight back, right? My natural reaction, um, years back especially, like, yeah, I, like there has to be a role I have special skills for this. Give me my, you know, M16. Send me out there. I can be on the like sidelines, ready, so when they come after the Christians, I can I can gun them down or something. But no, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to wage out the spiritual warfare, armed by our faith in Christ and what we see here in the Bible. Okay, this past Easter, it stuck out to me coming home from Easter service, right? I'm scanning through, my, scanning through my phone, just looking at some news on CNN. I see those attacks that took place in Sri Lanka, right? You had these bombings, hundreds of potential Christians killed because they were Christians. People of the cross, and I'd say people of the cross and the empty tomb. So... It's a daily reality in much of the world, actual physical death and persecution for faith in Jesus Christ. But in, this, in these United States, right, we need to examine ourselves. Are we avoiding even the possibility of some suffering or the least bit of discomfort or an awkward conversation or forbid, heaven forbid, right, we lose our jobs and we don't get to live in a two, three, 
thousand plus foot home? All right, really? No, we need to fear God rather than man. And another, another like as I was preaching through, just another example that stood out to me. It's like the, it's like the pull, push and push, a pull and push of fear. If you're about to go skydiving, right? You're at the ramp, maybe for that first time, and you're thinking, okay, there's all kinds of fear that might pull you away from the edge of the ramp, and that leap out of faith, right? The fear of the unknown, the fear of heights anything. And that fear that pulls you away from the ramp is that fear and that purpose, that whole purpose of you needing to jump out, okay, is that fear of man pulling you away. But on the other side, you have you have like the fear of okay, am I going to am I going to not fulfill the whole purpose? And if so, if you're jumping for your own fun, you know, that's one thing. But in the military, sometimes you do have to for an actual mission and purpose. So that kind of fear is like the fear of of God, right? The fear of God that we're supposed to have more than the fear of man to bring us to the edge and let us jump out time and time again because we're resting in Christ's power and in the Holy Spirit. So proclaiming Christ will and should create costs because God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, does not align with sinful norms. It's going to make people uncomfortable. It's going to make people angry. It's going to lead to passive and active threats and physical, emotional, and spiritual attacks and suffering. But although it costs, it's God's will. And it leads to spiritual blessing and the glory of God. And point three reveals these blessings because, so point three, proclaiming Christ convicts. Proclaiming Christ convicts. And this is the power of, God, of the gospel we can ex- expect. And we see that conviction right with the lame man in chapter 3, right? The gospel's convicting power is seen where this, way, uh, this lame man, which is all of us here, right, before we know God. We're sitting on the outside, outside of God's presence. And our need for Christ, right, through the gospel, convicts us, brings us to Christ, and we're that leaping lame man that is healed physically and spiritually and responds with leaping for joy. The conviction of Christ's power leaves no other response than praising God and proclaiming His goodness. And then, here in chapter 4, we see how God uses that one man, that example, the healing of this one man that was 40 years old, had never, you know, had been crippled, had been lame. And through that one man, Christ saves 5,000 men. All right? So that's the next side. The, from the one, many are saved. All right? So these 5,000 believed and came to know Christ. And this is the really the ultimate spiritual blessing, right? That can be bestowed on those that hear and believe to receive the good news of Christ and enter into that relationship with Him. And it's that reward for those that proclaim the good news to be able to directly see the fruits of their labor and see those come um, to know God, to know Christ. And it was an interesting point in one of the sermons I was listening to in preparing for the sermon brought out the point that, okay, there's 5,000 that were saved here, 5,000 men. So we don't know, you know, women, children, what, what was there, uh, how many additional uh, were saved in addition to the 5,000. And we know from two chapters earlier, there was 3,000 that were saved. That's 8,000 that we know were saved. Well, the estimates for the population of Jerusalem, they vary from that time frame, but they range between about 20,000 
to on the very low end to about a hundred thousand with some estimating about 40,000. So somewhere between 10 to 20% in this time period, over the course of the time period in these two chapters, came to know Christ. That's powerful. And that's never stood out to me. But think about the percentage of people that came to know Christ in that time frame. All right, so that's the amazing conviction uh, and power of God, the gospel that we can see, right, in proclaiming Christ. But we also see there's another reaction, and that's the hardening of hearts. So what we know from scriptures is that, unfortunately, the gospel's convicting power also leads to the hardening of hearts, and we see that with the religious leaders, the council, right? They crucified Christ. They, they are now hauling, they've seen you know, the saving power of Christ, this lame man healed, just like the rest of Jerusalem, but they react very differently. All right? They see the power of Christ. They see that these, this Peter and John who are standing before them have to be in, like completely insane and suicide, or suicidal, or they actually believe what they say, that they saw Christ rise from the dead and now are proclaiming that. All right, but their hearts are hardened. They want to destroy Peter and John for openly preaching and teaching and proclaiming Christ. So we can know this, right? Even seeing the power of God and the evidence, people all around us, family members, neighbors, friends, even our own children potentially, may reject ultimately Christ. So although many will reject Christ, Peter and John did not stop at that rejection, and neither should we. If we're faithful to magnify God's glory in our lives, they're not rejecting us, but they're rejecting the one who sent us. And we see that you can reference um, John 15 and Matthew 5 in those areas. Okay, the next area we can see the conviction from pro proclaiming Christ and from the gospel itself is in the church, right? Proclaiming Christ also can fix the believer. We know that it can convicts for, of sin, for sanctification in our lives, to grow more like Christ. But it, as it also shows here in Acts chapter 4, 23 through 31, that conviction causes the church and should cause the church to turn to Christ in fellowship and in prayer praise, and supplication. So point four is that we, His church, are to proclaim Christ in prayer. Proclaim Christ in prayer. Now, this is where um, this church has to deal with some excited elders coming back from a prayer conference last week. So what I want everybody to do is stand up. I want everybody to stand up. What we're going to do is we're going to actually pray through verses 24 through 30 all together. Okay, so I'm going to read uh, the beginning of 24 up to Sovereign Lord, and everybody will pick up together in, with Sovereign Lord when I say that. And we'll, pre, uh, we'll pray all the way down through verse 30. And as we do, let's not do it robotically. Let's imagine ourselves there. Um, with Peter and John in that church because it's directly applicable to us and then we'll talk about it. Alright. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your Holy Spirit, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen. All right, please sit down. All right. So this was the prayer for, that Peter and John led the church all together. And before talking about the prayer itself, the first thing I want us to notice is that after facing tribulation and trial, persecution, anger, threats, and suffering, Peter and John joined in fellowship with the church who then surrounded them and then entered into prayer with them. And we need to take a a page from this and do the same. When faced with hardship and persecution, we need to not be too proud to go off on the side, which is my natural reaction, right? Being self-sufficient, like I, I got this, like I know what to do, I'll read the Bible, I'll be fine, let me work through this. No, we need to gather around each other as a body of believers and build each other up, share each other's burdens, and come, come alongside each other. And then what are we to do? Well, we see we need to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And you see that in those um, seven verses we read, five of the seven are spent praising God and telling God who, about who He is. Okay? Because that puts us in the right place. That puts our heart in the right place to actually recognize God's power, claim His power, and then ask for the boldness to go out and proclaim that. Just like in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus modeled for us, it starts off, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we need to come before the Lord and continually praise God for His majesty and His glory and for who He is. And then secondly, we see the supplication of the church. And the supplication, you'll notice, that's provided here is to endure rather than remove the hardship. So when we go to him in supplication, and when we see Peter and John going before him, they're asking to endure this hardship and persecution and to carry out his will, not to remove it. Peter and John understand and recognize that Christ is being glorified through their hardship, and then they ask for the strength to follow his will, not to run away or be free of the hardship. So we need to recognize this, I believe, and seek not just... not the default reaction, which is to run away from the challenges in our lives, but to embrace them and recognize that God is sanctifying us. And that ultimately, it's not about us. It's about His glory and making Him known. So just like Peter and John in the early church, we here at Pillar Jacks are to join together in fellowship and prayer, praising God and asking for the courage and the perseverance to endure. So to, to tie it all together, uh, point five is to proclaim Christ as if we believe. Proclaim Christ as if we believe. 
So this is where the rubber meets the road, right? This is where we see if our heart and our actions match our words. This is where we fall short, we know, time and time again. But we must join together and hold each other accountable. And as Hebrews 10, uh, verse 24 and 25 say, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this stirring up all comes back to what we actually believe, what we read from Acts 4, 10 through 12 in particular. The fact that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So do we really believe this? And do we proclaim it like we believe it? Because the converse right, is that there are those all around us that are not coming to Christ and are condemned to eternal suffering and separation from God. So we need to proclaim the gospel in, that lives inside our hearts through our actions and through our words. And we need to ask ourselves, whom do we fear? Right? Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we serve an all-powerful God who's unfolding His plan. We do not need to fear the future. And we need to recognize there's a fate far worse than physical or mental torture and death. And we need to proclaim Christ having no fear of man, but of God. And we can do this, thank the Lord, because we know from Romans 8, uh, starting in 28, we know, it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called to His purpose. And then continuing down to verse 31, also in Romans 8, and then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who will be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who, is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In verse 37, know in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So long passage, but in a nutshell, we can have blessed assurance, right, in, in Jesus' love and His salvation. And we can also know that it's all according to His plan. And we can take joy in that plan, just like James talks about, to count it all joy, right? Because those trials on those tribulations are working God's work in our lives, are bringing us closer to Him, are closer to perfection and our sanctification to Christ. And we can have joy in that suffering.
And then if we're wondering still, well, how do I step forward in this? Like, what do I, what do I say? What do I do? Like, how, how am I going to know the right thing to say? Like, I'm not Peter and John. Well, remember, Peter and John, right, they were common, uneducated man, men. That's one of the things that was so shocking to them. They were expected to roll over on, on Jesus, like, you know, and, and just say, yeah, I know what we said, but we were just kind of throwing it out there. No, they were common, ordinary men that were being used by God. And we know from Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, where it says, And when they bring you before the synagogues, right? The synagogues and the rulers and the authorities do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So God has taken care of our every need and we only need to proclaim Christ, proclaim His saving power that we see here in Acts chapter 4, as if we really truly believe what God wrote down for us. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we just once again praise You um, for Your mercy, for Your, your blessings um, that You give us in our lives. Lord, but most importantly, we praise you for who you are. You are the all-powerful. You are the omega. You're the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Lord. Lord, we praise you that you work all things together for our good um, because we know that you are for us and that no one can stand against us. We thank you and praise you for the assurance that we can have that we've read about this morning. We thank you that we can rejoice um, even in our hardships. And we can rest in the fact that your will is being carried out. And we can know that there are far more, there are far worse things that can happen. And indeed, we can praise you just like we see here for the hardship because we know you are using us to carry out your work. And we praise you that we don't have to worry or fear um, about what we're going to say uh, when put in those situations. But we, we can just pray and ask for you for the boldness from you for the boldness to carry out your will and to proclaim Christ in all that we do and say. So Lord, let us just stir each other up here in love and good works and let us know what we believe and let's proclaim it, Lord. And ultimately, let us fear God and fear you rather than man. Um, in your name we pray. Amen.